you can have people who tie themselves up in ropes for a spiritual or sexual experience that is extremely uncomfortable or you'll have people in Thailand who pierce their faces with, with metal rods and stuff for a spiritual intent. You, you can have people who in, in the Philippines will hang themselves up in reverence to Christ and not report any extreme pain or not, not reporting in the same way that you or I would a pain in our knee and our back. And you start to realize that how we framed pain is very reductionist again that r word and and uh zoomed in and mechanical and linear linear is the word we have very linear patterns of thinking and so what i what my big thing is for people is to zoom out for pain and go what what is this really and primarily it's just an experience in your embodied awareness and it's always real I'm Danny Lucchini, and this is the Merakai Performance Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Merakai Performance Podcast. And you were just listening there to Oliver Crossley talking about pain and its cultural influences. In today's episode, Oliver comes on to discuss all things pain and gives us a little perspective from yoga. Oliver is a physiotherapist, he's an experienced yoga teacher and practitioner, and he is constantly providing quality information and education on his social media. He has a sharp eye and a great ability to critically think and analyze research and present it in easily digestible ways. He has an impressive understanding of the history of pain, amongst other things, which utilizes to form a well-rounded and contextually relevant view on what pain is and how it fits into current models and society. In today's episode, we discuss Oliver's history as a yoga practitioner and how it has influenced his development, his journey into physiotherapy, the philosophy and tradition of yoga, the blending of mind and movement training, the role of rest and parasympathetic states to reduce stress, and the impact that stress has in ailments. We talk about the impact of the teacher in our experience, We talk about blending yoga with scientific realities. We talk about how to practice yoga in a safe way and progressively overloaded mobility training. We talk about what pain is as an experience, the cultural influence of pain, our linear mechanical approach to pain and how it probably needs to be rethought and also how we need to rethink and perceive and treat pain. We talk about how language and the idea of validation can improve our relationships to pain and the experience associated. We talk about the role of the experience itself, various treatment methods. We touch on motivational interviewing, manual therapy, reframing reframing our relationship to tools. We talk about the importance of touch and how that plays a role with our view of manual therapy. We talk about manipulation and control uh, from a professional standpoint and how this may sometimes present itself as dishonest treatment methods. We talk about self-efficacy, human resilience, and we even throw a Star Wars reference in there before finishing off with some timely wisdom. I had an absolute pleasure to having Oliver on today and was deeply impressed by his ability to articulate uh, some really in-depth and well-thought-out ideas. And uh, this is definitely one of my favorite episodes to 
to be a part of the conversation. And I think it is also one of those ones where you're going to take something away from this episode that's going to shift your perspective. And it's impossible for it not to. How much you allow it to shift your perspective is going to be based on how willing you are to open yourself up to the ideas and zoom out and have a deep and critical look at your own practices, your own language, and your own uh, experiences with pain and how they uh, manifest themselves, not just working with clients, but just in our own lives. And I think if you if you come into this episode with the right attitude, you're going to get a lot out of it. So I really do urge you to listen to this somewhere where you can pay attention and stop sort of anything else you're doing that might distract you too much and have a really good listen of this one. And if you find it useful as well, it would really help if you could share uh, this episode and help get it out there because I think there's some great information and I don't want it to go away. So without any further ado, again, I hate saying that every episode, but I just keep doing it. Here is today's episode with Oliver Crossley. Okay, and welcome to another episode of the Merikai Performance Podcast. Today, I have with me Oliver. Uh, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, man. Appreciate the invite. Uh, I'm really excited to have Oli on. Um, he puts up a lot of great content online. Uh, I've also had the pleasure of knowing him through a couple of the bit of the movement community. We had a bit of a handstand race going on really quick there, which ended in about a week because he smashed me. And uh, but yeah, I am not here to talk about handstands with Oli because that would just make me upset. Uh, we're here to talk about uh, basically his role as a physiotherapist and how he incorporates a bunch of different things uh, into the idea of pain and injury treatment. So did you want to start by taking us through your history a little bit? I know there's a lot of yoga, there's movement and physiotherapy. How did it start? Why did it start? And how did it progress to where you are now? Thanks, man. Um, little prefix. I definitely had a head start on that. My, my <laughs> friend had been catching me up on the handstand push-up thing. So I don't think it was a fair race. Um, you are far stronger than me. Just let that to everyone be known. But um, no, my story started, uh, I wanted to be a, uh, like an, an economics banking dude in high school. Don't know why I had this sort of classic capitalist thought virus problem. And I was, I, I, uh, I was like, you know, enrolled to Melbourne uni was going to do bachelor of, uh, was, I think it was like arts and um, economics then. But I, before I was doing that, I had locked myself into a six month volunteering trip to India um, just through people who were volunteering at the high school I was at in Darwin uh, and this is about like 10 years ago because the school I was at had like majority of Indian indigenous boarding and so a bunch of Canadian kids would come over and like be boarding parents for them and it was like really fun and different for them uh, culturally and so they were like yeah well you can go to England or India or all these different places and I just looked at this picture of a girl sitting on a rooftop with a black board and a bunch of little monks and nuns and she was just teaching them English and I went I don't know why, but I want to do that. And so like long story short, I end up living in a Tibetan monastery and get really into Buddhist philosophy. And, and, and then I started attending a few yoga classes and I just really liked how I felt. And I was always like, like most Aussie kids had tried team sports. My, my parents were really generous. They didn't let me do everything from BMX to cricket, but, and I wasn't ever really astoundingly good at anything, but um, I felt, good in my body with yoga for the first time ever like I had this sense of self-efficacy that wasn't there before uh, belief in myself that slowly built and so when I came back to Australia 
economics was boring, yoga became an obsession. And I moved up to Townsville where my parents lived, enrolled in the physio program there and kept going. And then ever since then, it's just been an obsession into yoga, which then has kept my mind open enough to not stay in that silo. And I've, and I've become fascinated with just how to give the body freedom, uh, which it, like anything, I like to say, we've got this inherent freedom in us, both mentally and physically. And, and I, then I got the pleasure of starting to meet people like yourself, the OMU crew, all through that sort of Edo portal wave of 2013, 14. And um, yeah, and I'm just, uh, everything from now on has been about like physical and mental freedom. Awesome, man. I, I, can, I can imagine how coming back from a trip like that would make economics seem very boring. Um, yeah, man. <laughs> the desk job life was not for me, as um, we've spoken about before. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, uh, economics sounded boring to me before that. Uh, <laughs> but of course, valuable skill. Uh, and yeah, shout out, shout out to OMU, uh, for for bringing Mm. us together. Uh, That's an awesome, for those who don't know, yeah, it's basically, it's this OMU is the online movement university and it's run by DJ John and Jonathan and basically just brings a bunch of movers together and has monthly courses and it's uh, monthly units, sorry, where we go through different topics, which is awesome. And yeah, I really like what you talked about. Just basically giving the body the innate freedom that it sort of has the right to. And that's where we as practitioners come in to help spread that and share that. So after yoga and into that movement world, you eventually obviously decided to get into physiotherapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, why, why did that sort of one particular area stand out to you as opposed to being a movement coach or sticking to being a yoga teacher or anything like that? I... Um, when I enrolled in physio, I didn't, the movement world was very, I I didn't know about it. It Completely foreign to me, had no idea. And I guess the movement world itself was still growing then because this is 2012. So six months into my uni degree, I was just becoming increasingly obsessed with yoga and just kind of, I don't know, like some of us are lucky enough to get this taste of like an intense passion for something. And you just go, gosh, this is it um in some form and of course it changes but i just went right i need to do something i know i want to teach yoga and do everything yoga related in my life but i know i've got some like time as a student that's required and i can't just i had this you know luckily through the style of yoga i got into ashtanga yoga there's this acceptance of uh practices them as the center point and that you can't just go and do a training and be a teacher and be legit. You have to put in the work and spend the years doing it to build the expertise and and just the maturity. So I went, right, well, I've got to fill up some time. And I had this inkling to be a physio when I was in late high school. Uh, I've told this story a little bit before, but my late grandma, who I never got to meet, was a physio. She graduated from, I think, what was the original program at Sydney Uni in 1945. And she was like, I just, I, one of those people I really wish I got to meet because uh, often, I mean, a lot of us probably feel like this, we've got weird certain traits or, or um, ways of thinking and being that we can't often relate to our family. But uh, from what I knew of my grandma, I knew a lot of what I was came from her she was very 
very, very intellectual, um, really, not to talk about myself, more to talk about her, but she was very intellectual, very independent, a very fierce woman of the times, like 1945 leaves uni, goes to London to treat people in with polio in the hospitals there and doesn't get married or come back to Australia until the mid-30s. And that time, that's pretty socially progressive. And, and then I just went, gosh, I think I want to follow this path. And so I enrolled and, and started learning about like the science of, of just how the body works from the physio perspective and then how to start to be someone who can help other people, whether it's in a hospital setting or a clinic setting. Yeah, that's awesome. And it seems to be a theme of that throughout your little the journey you've explained sorry little journey the uh, the journey you've explained to us there it's about helping people and finding different ways to do that and it sounds like your your grandmother was uh, on that same same train of thought which is really awesome to have that like you said when you can't necessarily connect on other aspects to the rest of your family knowing that that's there is it's definitely a confidence booster it gives you that that relatedness that we need big time man now uh yoga is one of those things that I think is very misunderstood um, <laughs> unless you're in the world um, because of the way I guess it's become commercialized and because of that and I've definitely been guilty of this uh, it sort of gets shamed a little bit in the movement world or in the rehab world as something that isn't necessarily a good tool uh, or a way to go about these sort of things and again that I think it, it does all stem from a place of misunderstanding so could you explain to us a little bit I guess how yoga has influenced the way that you are now able to look at physiotherapy and treatment and yeah, maybe just some of those misconceptions about it not being something that is a useful tool because it's passive or whatever it is, or people just have this image of, of Lululemon tights and all this crap. And yeah, take us into what it is really and and how it's influenced you um, as a practitioner. Thanks, man. Yeah. So initially what it did was yoga gave our culture and me personally the perspective that was not readily available, which is the zoom out, see the whole person and also start to, and it's just one old way. It's not perfect. And I'll talk about this later on with new views of physio, but it was, it was one way of going, right, here's a person as they are holistically with many contributing parts and and functions, not just their, their joints or their muscles or their whatever, but like, uh, you know, their social life, their, their mental life and all of the different patterns that come together to bring this person in front of you. And to see that from its original holistic standpoint was it always sounds cliche and I get frustrated because I say it because I want to describe it in a way that makes it seem like it's really important because it always is. And much of where we've gone astray um, is, has been over isolation or reduction without then remembering to zoom back out. Zooming in is really good and it's taught us a lot of things as a culture, but zooming back out is important. And then yoga as a practice it sort of went, well, you've got a bunch of patterns and habits that tend to create suffering. So most of us equate yoga with a physical posture practice that has its pros and cons. Uh, but yoga as a tradition, loose and varied in its um, path over the last, you know, probably 3,000 years, is a way of looking at freedom. Uh, and it's that central theme that we, we come back to in our professional life is about giving ourselves and others freedom 
in in its original sense and that freedom is achieved through observing mental emotional energetic and physical patterns and then using certain interventions practices in those three areas um, as much as they're very isolated mental physical emotional energetic to clear up some of the patterns uh, and it's basically internal gardening. And I feel like it gave me the perspective where I could unify mind training with physical training, which the movement world has now taken out of yoga and made a lot more accessible to those who don't find yoga as cool. But it was, it was the thing that brought that together and I think still does for many people today, which is why even though doing a deadlift might be really good for your posterior chain as opposed to a certain yoga pose or poses it gives people a unified sense of consciousness in their body an embodied embodied state of being that they weren't they didn't have accessible otherwise too often when we do our deadlifts like i was this morning the gym's noisy i'm surrounded by people it's hard to unless i have deliberately trained it more easily come into the state of ah oh, uh, original freedom and i i feel like I take a, with the, the problems of yoga as it's commonly known with postures, I think that's probably something really good to talk about because it's something I've struggled with personally. Yoga poses in their various traditions for a brief history for people that came down through this guy for the most part uh, called Krishnamacharya. And he taught two or a variety of people, but predominantly two people Iyengar and Bikas Iyengar and Patabi Joyce. And these two Indian guys are then the fathers of the main schools of yoga that then filter and vary out to what we see in our studios today. So Iyengar's are very static, hold your poses for a long time, focus on certain things, prolong postures. I don't know it very well because it's not my history, so sorry to the Iyengar people if I'm not explaining it well. But you, you sit in postures for a long time. It tends to be where this passive idea of yoga comes from. Then we go over to the Ashtanga side of things uh, from Patabi Joyce with this vinyasa, flowing, moving yoga, which I really related to, which was bringing together yoga postures into a sequence that gave you a sense of a holistic practice that brought together, for the most part, quite a bit of strength training admittedly mainly for the arms and core and quite a bit of like flexibility mobility but also breath and mental awareness training so we talk about in ashtanga the the trishtana the threefold tripod and that for me really embodies any physical practice and it's sort of an awareness of the body primarily an awareness of breathing and an awareness of internal sensation and energy so um, or sorry, my brain's just skipped there Friday morning. It's breath, body, and gaze. So breath, physical body sensations, energetics, however you want to describe that. A, a gaze in terms of like, that's where your mind's darting all the time. So let's kind of take the, the light and laser beam it. And then your breath. Uh, and the, the gift of breath is the main thing because we know that our mental state is always... Uh, related to our, our breath state like two fish they never depart so if if our mental state goes one way our breath will always follow if our breath goes one way the mental state will generally follow and so people a couple of thousand years ago started to figure this out and we're like, oh, okay we can manipulate this and so bringing it together was really good but 
where we've come into some faults with yoga is this idea that there's a right way and a wrong way. Like any human system, we've gotten dogmatic. And the police came out and went, you're not holding your knee right or this sense of alignment or you're going to injure yourself if you do this or these really specific isolated rules that I have since, like many others, found out not to be true in reality. And so these movement guys like you, I mean, I throw it back to you, man. Like I'd like to hear what your perspective of its faults are um, from someone who isn't in the yoga world. Yeah, so just to, yeah, to answer you there directly, it's like from what I see with it in the way that it's practiced is it's, it's practiced with the intention of, uh, again, this is me generalizing based on what no, I see. No, go for it, man. I like, don't know how true this is. No course. filter. Uh, basically, it's used as a, by a lot of people as a way to get more flexible with the idea that mm -hmm. it's going to help them reduce pain. It's going to help them be able to perform movements better. But it's done in a way that, isn't really addressing strength. It's not addressing capacity. It's forcing positions. And like you talked about trying to find these specific alignments that not every individual is currently capable of or should or can be doing at that time. Um, of course they can do it for a certain amount, but everyone has a certain capacity at each point. And I think it can be forced and things are just generalized too much. And that's like, again, if we talk about any system, if we look at, you know, the anything within the movement culture stuff, it all becomes this generalized business model, basically, which promotes this, this poor idea of it. And it starts to become a social status and it starts to become a, <laughs> a, something I can say that I do on the weekends or something I do on a Friday, but it's not matched by the intention or like the reverence of the practice. And, you know, you said some really great things there about it's giving, it gives you an opportunity to zoom out. Of course, we need to zoom in at certain times, but that ability to then zoom back out and look at all the different things and the the body breath gaze is something that I talk about a lot just in different terms, but it's it's body autonomy is a huge one. And if we look at any like gym-based exercise culture, the crappier side of yoga culture, it's it's like removing all of that. It's like externalizing everything. And that's where people get into problems and that's where people get, you know, pains and they get a uh, poor relationship with their body. And then they don't have the control of the breath and it, they don't develop the tools that they're expecting to develop. And that just causes like this chain of issues down the line. Bingo, yeah. man. Yeah. And I think a lot of the things where yoga has been screwed up is where we've brought a really Western conquest ego-based mentality and hands up here, me, I am guilty of this daily. Like I still, unfortunately, I mean, I was having a discussion with some movement guys the other day about this. Like it's really hard to remove ourselves from the culture we've come from. And so we're, we come with a lot of things with assumptions and perspectives that we don't even know we have. And so a lot of us Westerners will go, right, well, I've got to get my leg behind my head, even if, if I'm really listening to my body, really paying attention, that might not be the best idea today. Not saying it's an evil position as there are none, but it's just, it's just this kind of forcing achieve do become mentality that can corrupt it. And one of the things I've really taken from yoga that's then enriched everything else I do is this capacity to, which my Buddhist practice really brings in, but I feel like they weave together so well. It's this capacity to stop listen and in really mechanistic terms 
downregulate to what I would say is a state that is not readily accessed enough. I know you do this really well, Dan, for a person who's removed from the yoga context is come back to our natural state of rest and digest parasympathetic goodness, uh, where physiologically we need to rest a lot more, but we bring this same mild fight or flight state into our lives, work, yoga practice, everything, family relationships that sort of makes us fizz as a mentor of mine says, like you can tell when someone's fizzing and it's, and that mild stress is what breaks us down. And yoga has always been going, Hey, let's, that's, that is itself a pattern in your mental, physical, emotional body that is corrupting your original freedom and getting in the way of yourself. Uh, so it was, yeah, that, that kind of where you lie down at the end or even just at the start and just, there's nowhere to go, nothing to do, nothing to achieve. I feel like everyone needs to know what that feels like and readily access it when they need to. Yeah. I, I, I spent, how long was it? Maybe somewhere between three and six months, uh, trying yoga a while ago. This is before I was. Uh, I guess my perspective was open enough. I did it for the reasons I just talked about. I don't think people should be doing it for trying to get uh, flexible. Yeah. Trying to get flexible. I was a powerlifter at the time. Things hurt all the time. And thinking back, of course, personal responsibility. I should have done my own research more. But you know, either way, you go to a teacher for for these lessons, and that what you just talked about there was never really explained. Sure, they would sit us down at the start or at the end, and you you just lie. But I would just lie there like, what the hell am I doing? I just, I, I came here to stretch. And like, it was never communicated well to me. And this is, of course, not a attack at yoga. This is, this is the, the teacher didn't speak to me and I didn't listen in the way that I should have or whatever that is. But uh, that rest and digest, like that, or that state of relaxation is so important. That chronic low-level forever stress is what breaks everything. Uh, I don't know if you, if you, heard of Gabor Mate? Yeah, man. Yeah. Big respect book, for that, man. When the body says no. Yeah. Yeah. It basically is the entire book. is just talking about how all these ailments and chronic illnesses, of course they have their own individual cause, but then stress is basically the catalyst that activates everything. And if we're exposed for too long, of course, stress is also a good thing, but anything in doses for too long and we don't do anything to fix it. it that's where all our, other concerns and these pains and these diseases start actually presenting themselves and something i'm sure we'll talk about today you can have two people's very similar physical conditions and completely different symptomatic uh, symptoms and Big that's time. what yep. it comes down to right and yeah 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 man so i guess something to because yeah well, I, that stress thing is a big thing to get into but to go back and just give people a bit of closure on what yoga, like where it can be good with meeting that problem. Like where, you know, the power lifter or the crossfitter goes, God, I want to get more flexible Let's show up here. And then they get forced into end range positions, which you said they don't have the capacity for what I'm trying to do now for yoga teachers and myself is to pr provide a yoga that is aware of those, that scientific reality of going, we're all built with different skeletons. Hey, therefore we will have different ranges just straight, like biomechanically. And then tissues have a certain capacity and that with great potential, but they need to be mindfully trained so that you can get there. 
I myself can put two legs behind my head, but it's taken a progressive overload over a period of time with the mindfulness to my nervous system so as to not injure myself, even though I still have. And so what, for the average person, yoga needs to be provided in a safe way where it's not the cure-all for joint mobility. It's one of a few tools, but it's very generalized and non-prescriptive, like things like FRC or certain loaded progressive mobility stuff can be. And it, and it can be provided to people safely where they're cued not to force themselves into end range position, but to be in their body as they are that like acceptance. Um, I think that's what comes down to really well, like in, in like the Dharma or in Buddhism or in yoga, they talk about just accepting things as they are. Uh, and it's, it's super, super powerful. But then if you want to get more mobile, like for sure, I did Jefferson curls at the gym this morning. And like, if it wasn't for them, I'd still have bilateral hamstring tendinopathies that I've had chronically for four years. And it's like, it's getting out of my yoga bubble and getting out of my dogma and listening to guys like you where I've gone, Oh, I can come back and enrich the world I came from. We can all learn from each other. Um, and it's that, that humility and acceptance has, has been the best things. Yeah, I really like that last little bit there. It's about enriching the things that we love. And, you know, that's the, that's the example of zooming out. There's so many things that we do on a day-to-day basis. And like, okay, coming from the powerlifting world, I think powerlifting can be done in a lot of a healthier way. So <laughs> one of my things I've been doing over the last couple of years is working with the powerlifters that were at the gym and trying to incorporate more joint health stuff and trying to think about the bigger picture and not always having to go to an RPE 12 every single day just to see what, how quickly your brain explodes. It's like we can enrich these things by like you talked about taking that moment to zoom out, which is awesome. All right. I want to go into our next section now. And one thing that I really like the way you describe or talk about is pain and obviously an incredibly complicated, deep, heavy topic, perhaps. Um, Let's sort of start it off. And what is pain? And what are the sort of different factors that can go into it? Well, it's pain is at the moment, for all of us, I think, just in layman's terms, this experience of very uncomfortable sensations um, within our perception that that make us think that something's wrong um, you know and it's a, an aversive and uncomfortable experience not just physically but psycho-emotionally as well uh, and it's the assumption with pain is that it's directly boom straight away and it's very instinctual of course we want to do this like I'm not saying it's I'm better because I don't think this, but we instinctually, when we feel pain go, holy shit, fuck, something's wrong. My knee hurts. My like, why, why is like for me at the moment, why is the inside of my left ankle aching? There must be something wrong with the tissues. Um, And there's like everything. And I'm really fascinated with this things that exist in our current, that we just take for granted. There are big cultural narratives and stories that we've told ourselves for generations that contribute to how we perceive something as simple as an aversive experience of pain in the body. Like we just go, Oh, my, my leg hurts. And like, I'm, I'm like researching this in depth at the moment. I'm still going through some history papers, but like 
oh gosh, I could rant about this forever, but just without going too far ahead, you can have people who tie themselves up in ropes for a spiritual or sexual experience that is extremely uncomfortable. Or you'll have people in Thailand who pierce their faces with, with metal rods and stuff for a spiritual intent. You, you can have people who in, in the Philippines will hang themselves up in reverence to Christ and not report any extreme pain or not, not reporting in the same way that you or I would a pain in our knee and our back. And you start to realize that how we framed pain is very reductionist. Again, that R word and, and uh, zoomed in and mechanical and linear. Linear is the word. We have very linear patterns of thinking. And so what I, what my big thing is for people is to zoom out for pain and go, well, what, what is this really? And primarily it's just an experience in your embodied awareness. And it's always real. I should, before I rant anymore, I should just say to people, like there's all these theories and talks about pain, but it is always, always real. Even for people who have phantom limb pain and the arm isn't there that hurts, that pain is hundred percent real and not in your head or made up. Hmm. Yeah, everything's perceived in the same place, right? So whether it's something that <laughs> yeah, exactly. seems, seems logical or not, that's irrelevant. It's it's real. Um, yep. Yeah, I, I think it's the context of pain and like the cultural considerations are huge. Like even if we, if I, I'm definitely stealing this example from a book. I just can't remember which book. Um, yeah, but yeah. Uh, for example, when we train really hard and we're short of breath and our heart's pounding and you just have all these endorphins, it feels awesome. Imagine you woke up feeling that. Bingo. That's exactly. Feeling. You'd freak I out. I love that right? example. Yeah, I wish I could remember where it was from. It actually might be a Gabo Mate book. I, I can't remember, but either way, it's, um, it, it's, that's the example of, yeah, it, it really is something that's super contextual. And our attitude towards what we're feeling and I guess the scenario that it's happening determines a lot about how we then respond. Bingo. And that, that's, our, that's the big thing is that the big mind-blowing drop for me, which has completely shifted how I practice physio, if pain is contextual and if, which it is, pain can be influenced dramatically by the context, attitudes and emotions of the moment, then we need to go back to the drawing board and look at every way that we currently perceive and treat pain. It's because from the massage that the physio gives you to the explanation of why you're injured, all of these models and theories that we've used for decades are quickly becoming redundant. And unfortunately, with the advancement of scientific knowledge, it's slow. Uh, there's always this annoying reality. I don't, they say that it takes 17 years for knowledge to translate from when it's published and understood in an academic sense into the wider zeitgeist, wider social context. And I think that has a lot to say about like just how we are as people. Um, we own our stories and attach egos to them. Whereas um, something that I always frame any knowledge journey or any, I mean, anything really, saying this to a friend yesterday is not how am I right and how might, how might this be proved right, but how am I, and this is what's enriched my yoga con like understanding before when I spoke about getting out of my bubble, how might I be wrong here? And those questions, 
particularly in really good researchers like Loma Mosley, uh, Tasha Stanton, Mick Thacker. Like there's, I mean, there's so many, uh, Johan Vlayen from Europe. All of these people have created massive shifts in how we look at pain because they've asked those questions like many thousands of scientists before them. And it's this, it's this zooming out and going, right, the one, the, the one little pathway into pain causally that we've looked at and, and focused on for centuries has been tissue damage, something's wrong, signal nerve, specific nerve pain signal, brain, bell dings, I'm, a, I'm in pain. And what we've since realised is, mm, like anything, I mean, anything when it comes to the brain, we've got to presume, first of all, that we don't know because there's, I mean, there's as many connections between neurons as there are known uh, planets in the, in the universe that we've tracked, I think. Um, I hope, I like to think that's still correct, um, although it's a very kind of pop science-y slang. <laughs> I think it was saying it's really, it, it goes to show that like, like sit down, shut up, be humble. We do not know anything when it comes to the brain just yet. And we're getting very mechanistic. So there's this idea in pain and in anything in the body or anything in life where we really stick to our metaphors and we've evolved with them. So we look at how we explain the body now. We're using very computational metaphors now and we're moving away from mechanistic things because if you look at where the culture is, technologically, we're moving into more computational, quite advanced computational areas, you know, the whole of artificial intelligence, machine learning. Whereas if we rewind 20 years, we had quite fancy mechanotronic kind of things and you go back to the industrial revolution, steam engines, a little more simpler things and as we go through these technological advancements right back to the simple sword, axe and shield, we explain things according to the best technologies we had. Uh, and we need to be careful of that because in the 16th century, a man called Rene Descartes, famously known for saying, I think, therefore I am, who's quite the French philosopher, philosopher in general, wrote in this book, that wasn't published until after his death, this idea of where we still think, why we still feel pain. And it was this drawing that I'll send to you after this talk, man, because I feel like people need to see it. There's this, a boy near a fire, his foot's near the fire, and there's this single line from the foot up into the spinal cord, you know, cred to Renee, he got that pretty right for someone who hadn't cut bodies up that much. Mm. And then up like a dinging bell in the brain, awareness, boom, there is damage in my foot, therefore pain. And so this equation of pain with damage became a big social, uh, became a, a very strong narrative in our culture, um, in the Western European culture. Um, I can't speak for any others. So what we see now is this kinesiopathological or pathoanatomical model that dominates in clinical practice. So when we're in pain and we go to see someone, we have this explanation of, all right, we assume straight away that something's wrong in the body, which is okay. We can assume that, but not always. And so what we go to is, right, well, let's test the knee. Is it the meniscus? Is it the ACL? Is it these ligaments, the outside, the inside? Is it the patella, like the kneecap? And often, like with so many conditions, we, after zooming out and realising that pain is very contextual, you can have pain without damage or without the fancy word that we use, nociception, detection of danger. 
And one of my favourite stories for this, without rambling on too much more, is from Lauren Mosley, leading Australian pain scientist, where all of this really comes from. He's a unifier of it all. He, he talks about this in a TED talk, 20 minutes into 30 seconds. Goes for a bushwalk, feels a scratch on his leg. Okay. Goes in for a swim in the creek. He's camping with his family. Gets out of the creek, passes out, can't remember anything. Wakes up in Adelaide Hospital and he's been bitten by a king brown snake, western brown snake. Nearly died. Oh, my God. But sensation, mild threat, not really. Scratch of a twig, past experience, went, nah, I'm okay. Let's keep going. Man nearly died. Months later, he's camping, goes walking again with friends, feels the same scratch on his leg, similar, similar location. Scratch on his leg like we all have when we're bushwalking and <gasps> drops to the ground agonizing pain holy shit what is going wrong takes a couple of seconds nearly a minute for his friends to reassure him that it is just a twig scratch now what happens there sensation goes up to the brain the orchestral conference that happens inside our skull goes hmm, sensation from this area in the body has been experienced before what happened hmm, last time we died nearly died uh okay we should probably warn him that something's bad so therefore pain goes up and he, extreme, he experiences the agonizing pain with minimal actual physiological threat, whereas prior, massive physiological threat, minimal pain. And so we see from his work and the work of many that pain is not a, a, a meaning of, that you have damage, but rather an indication of the perception of threat. Yeah. I absolutely love that example. It's one that I, I've used as well uh, when trying to explain these things to people because uh, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. And it, it we are a body that tries to store information to keep us safe. And if there's a situation where we nearly died, for example, it's going to remember that and it's going to be overly uh, alert to those sort of same similar sensations. And it's really important for us to understand that because when we're in now a world where we are exposed to just constant stimulus, and that means we're taking a lot of information. That means a lot of the stuff we're absorbing, we're taking in probably isn't relevant all the time because things are obviously <laughs> very flux and, and changing. So yeah, I think there's, there's really, really important consideration. there. So in saying all that, so we know that there's these cultural contexts, there's past history, there's all these different things that can contribute to pain. Then what do we say to that person who goes into the physio with this chronic knee pain? They've had it for a long time. And the physio starts massaging and, you know, goes away a little bit and they continue to experience that pain and they're told that they have, you know, maybe a meniscus strain or something like that. And how do we start to change one, the treatment, but to that person's uh, attachment now because they've experienced manual therapy or a physical based model the whole time. So it's like, I've got clients where they experience pain currently and, you know, we're trying to explain the biopsychosocial model and the physio that they work with is really good in that capacity as well, but they keep coming back to the physical and even me as a trainer, because it's the area I feel like I have the most control over. I'll still give them the physical stuff, even though I know that there's a lot of other elements, but it's just right now I'm sort of having that realization that maybe I'm ingraining that physical, uh, I guess, lens on to everything. How do we start mm. to change that? How do we start to shift that client's perspective, but also obviously the bigger treatment protocol as well? 
That's a pretty loaded question. But. That is a massive question that we are still in the process of scientifically investigating. Because after we realised that pain was not what we thought it was, we started to educate people. We meaning, not me, I wish it was, but one day I might get into it. Uh, smart people who I've learned from. Mm. And these smart people who I've learned from have done these studies and realised that, oh gosh, people's pain doesn't actually change. But their perception of, of its bothersomeness drops and their engagement in activity increases. And so we're still learning about the bigger picture and we're starting to look at things like predictive processing where we realize that we're actually really our consciousness and our neurology is a, is a predictive uh, uncertainty reducing mechanism in its, you know, in very reductionist kind of, yeah, rule of thumb kind of way of speaking. And so primarily, uh, the first thing with any pain experience, whether it's you, whether it's your friend, whether it's your client, if you're a coach or a physio, is validate, validate, validate. Because the pain is produced always by the human, to zoom out again, to see them as they are, as a holistic being, we need to realise that even though there might be little contributions from social stress, from this, from that, we can't go in like a mechanistic science with scientists with our mechanistic thinking and play with dials like we want to i've made that mistake and you get a blank eyed response back to you you need to treat someone as we always have which is just this friendly human to human who validates and understands the experience and then starts to offer little perspectives as we go and things like motivational interviewing can be really useful for this um I'm just trying to remember the name of the guy you'll have to I might get it before we end the call, but the guy who came up with motivational interviewing has written some really good books about this. But information, uh, a really famous uh, pain psychologist, and I'm not going to remember his name, but Johan Vlain did his PhD with him back in the 60s. He said, information to behaviour change is like... Um, oh, there we go. Trying to change a brick with wet spaghetti. No, hang on. I'm going to pull this up. My brain's not working, everyone, so I'm going to Google this because it's really important. Information to behaviour change is the assumption that we're making because what happens when we think that just talking to someone or telling them this new idea, there's so much more, is... Uh, I'll bring it up. But trying to just explain things the way it doesn't work. And what we need to do is sit with someone and get them moving in new ways. It's all about trying to underwrite this predictive process that we're going into because we come with a lot of conditioning. We've existed for a long time, right? So a, a, a conversation isn't going to change 20 years of previous understanding, but an experience might, and we live in like we're embodied people. So if you offer someone an embodied experience where their pain is different so let's say i've got crippling back pain but i convince you that you're safe enough for the meantime to try a, a light deadlift and you lift and you're you're not dying everything's fine and you might experience less pain it's those sorts of experiences where we where we violate expectation that new understanding of pain comes around and with all of this new understanding of pain has come a demonization of manual therapy um, which again comes back to the problem of dogma and an unquestioning, you know, culture of practice. I need to make the point here that manual therapy, as we have used it, massaging people, treating people, 
doesn't work how we think it does. Our ways of explaining it are wrong, not the thing itself. So when I massage someone and say I'm feeling their epimysial grooves or I'm shifting their ankle or repositioning something or aligning it if I'm a chiropractor, all of that has been proven over hundreds of studies to be in, invalid. Like spines don't move, the SI joint, SIJ, sacroiliac joint is rigid, it's not out of place, nothing shifted, your back is never out. But that being said, we still need people to touch us because like there's a lady, Diane Jacobs, I encourage everyone to read up on. She's a Canadian physio in her seventies now. And she says, we're social monkeys. Like we reassure and calm each other down by touching each other. And that sounds really kind of cooped, but like as therapists, that's our social kind of in our Western culture, we've set that up to be, that's where the place we go. The only problem is we've attached a, a, um, a virus narrative to the process to try and explain why it works. So rather than manual therapy working because I'm realigning, shifting or repositioning something, it works because I'm creating a space of safety, trust, where the nervous system can downregulate and have a reduced perception of threat. Therefore, we hope, but this is all down to the person and their individual expectations and subconscious thinking, a reduced level of pain. Because we each, some people find yoga studios really calming. Some people think they're whacked out hippie places. So that goes to show that what will change someone's pain is really individual. So we come back to that first point of need to understand the person as they are. Daniel, what's important to him? What are his values? What does he like? What does he not like? Then I've got some material to work with. Information is to behavior change as spaghetti is to brick. Yeah. That's the, uh, the quote there. Um, quote, thank you for fixing my... Dysfunctional <laughs> it's a good quote. It is. It is a good quote. Yeah. Look, William uh, Forsyth. I just remembered his name. Ah, there you go. Yeah. Famous psychologist. Look, uh, a lot of really, really important points there. And I think it's, it's like you said, we're, we're trying to override or work with this huge... Oh, uh, her, it, what do I think of this huge uh, history and it doesn't just happen super easily. And that, that, that is obviously the challenge and that's what we're trying to figure out. We're trying to come to the conclusion of, and these conversations are going to help with that. Uh, but like yeah. you said, experience is, is the biggest teacher. Uh, you don't truly understand something until you experience it firsthand. You have an idea about it. You understand the theory but until you mm. smile, you don't really know what a smile feels like. It's yep, just yep. teeth grinning and eyes or whatever. And I think uh, uh, DJ um, gives this example. We'll talk about pain sometimes. And a great example. He had a client that uh, had back pain when deadlifting. And no matter what, they kind of would just always experience some sort of back pain. So they kind of wouldn't really do deadlifts. And one day he had them doing sandbag um, uh, lift and press. So picking a sandbag up off the floor, that was, I can't remember the weight, but it was a certain weight, pressing it overhead. Yeah, realistically, it was probably pretty (laughs) heavy. And then at that same day, same person at the end of the session was asked to deadlift that sandbag. So no longer asked to pick it up and shoulder press it, asked to deadlift it. And all of a sudden there was pain. And upon reminding them that at the start of that session, they were picking up the same bag off the floor, there was no pain. And that, opportunity of experience kind of enlightened that person to the fact that, Hey, I actually can do this. And it stopped being an issue. 
nothing changed in that time. Their technique didn't get better. They didn't get better at bracing or they didn't yeah, realign their SIJ. In the meantime, <laughs> it, it, it was one of the most rigid things ever there. Um, it just was the experience and that changed. And then, voila, we have this thing. But of course, it's not always that glaringly obvious and easy. That's Nah, you hope it is. And that's where like patience in this process is. The current hypothesis for all of this is to like, if we get little expectation violations like that with contextual change, and that's really good, like changing the barbell to the bag, like people go, I can't deadlift because there's like a sense of threat. It's a deadlift, like, oh, I'm going to die or something. I don't know. There's, there's language and hidden subjective meaning in all of this stuff that can be manipulated to suit your uh, environment with the client or you as the client, as the, as the person in the gym. Um, and, and those little changes, we know that neuroplasticity is an ever-present phenomenon it takes time. And so if these little changes happen over a series of months, the current hypothesis is that pain will change with understanding and experience and you can overcome chronic pain, but it takes a skilled um, mentor, coach, therapist and an open-minded client to meet that context and hopefully invoke change. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. And another thing I wanted to, to, touched on that you mentioned there was the, the role of manual therapy. And I think it's similar to what we talked about with yoga before. It's not the thing isn't right. It's just, we're explaining it in a, I guess, dishonest, but maybe not deliberately dishonest way. But yeah, just the problem, yeah, exactly. But the problem is it has also then become a tool, whether again, deliberate or not, I find it hard to believe that it's not deliberate in creating a relationship of need. Uh, with that therapist for example i have a sore knee every time i squat i go to a massage therapist or a physio and they give me needles and they massage me and they make me squat inside the clinic and oh wow it doesn't hurt awesome you go back to the gym maybe that same day or the next day it still doesn't hurt but the next session again it hurts again i'm like ah, the only thing that got away got rid of my knee pain was going to the physio so i want to go back to them and then that cycle then continues and they're doing the same TFL release and clams for the next six years and going, well, the more I do this, I'm going to get rid of my knee pain surely. But it's been six years. You potentially want to try something different. And I think that's the problem with something like manual therapy. Sure. Even though we, if we can, we know from a biological standpoint that touch and these like, even we have things such as weighted blankets and stuff like that, where we know that that pressure is good for us but it's just being so attached now to something that is potentially, you know, dishonest and based around business models and hitting like targets and stuff like that. And that's a really hard thing to overcome too. Yeah. The problem with anything, I'm really thinking about this at the moment with like um, the rising of what should have been brought into our awareness and has been over and over again over the last 200 years, but the, issue of racial injustice and white white sort of fragility and supremacy but this when people obtain power over others it's really easy for us to fall into this trap of manipulating and deceiving others for the sake of our own benefit and whilst it's uncomfortable to let go of that um it, it's i think it's really important for human flourishing and so when it comes back to the simple less painful worlds of yoga and manual therapy 
just doing, um, you know, saying that yoga is the only way you're going to get flexible or doing this pose is the answer and ends up hurting someone or saying that this release or this manual therapy is the only way that someone's going to come back or to get, to get pain free is really manipulative and pain is intimately related with someone's sense of self-efficacy, this belief in their own capacity to control and determine their own circumstance. And it's something that any good therapist, coach, person, mentor, guide should be instilling in someone because the rise in self-efficacy I've felt through various practices, particularly from these pain science um, nuggets and the broadening of these movement practices have allowed me to have this in just quite a belief in the resilience of my body. And then I look at people like you running so much and I go, gosh, there's so much the body can handle. And yet we get put into these little Kate, like small bubbles where we're stuck thinking that there's only one way out and manual therapy is only ever like a Panadol, like a, a nice, year like any kind of distraction a short-term threat modulator that then changes someone's pain experience whereas manual therapy can be turned around and become like you know like the force it can be used for darkness or good and you can be a jedi and turn it around combine it with self-efficacy building movement and education so that the person becomes independent in controlling their own body and, and symptoms uh, and it's so key because unfortunately many models of rehab, be it chiro, osteo or physio, depend on what Diane Jacobs calls an operator model. This idea that I'm the mechanic, you're the car, you come to fix me every on a regular basis. Whereas we need to shift to this idea of this is another human who is no more or less important than you and you see them as an equal and interact with them. I am just a coach and interactor to hopefully allow like psychologists operate now a new perspective so that you can enrich your own understanding and then leave me and live your own life in uh, freedom and happiness. Yeah. And uh, like there's a nice, uh, nice secular way to finish there with the idea of coming back to that freedom. And um, what we talked about there, it's, it's, it becomes so important to, to enrich that person with their own like, confidence in what they're doing. And like you talk, like I, like I, I think of a million examples of myself, my own pain experiences. Like after I did the hundred kilometer, I, I broke my foot on that. Well, I, again, I'm, I'm pretty sure that I broke my foot on that. I never got it scanned because I didn't, like, <laughs> it didn't really make a difference to the protocol, right? Whether it was broken or not. Exactly. Or hurt. But it got to the point where it took, it was just taking too long for what I considered to be right to heal. So I was like, eh, I might start running anyway. And look, I still was kind of smart about it. And I was using that pain experience to sort of guide how much I was doing. And I was running on grass. And, you know, within a week, it had got better. Just like one week of kind of just letting my body experience what's there and see what's really happening and giving it many, many, many experiences to face that same thing. And lo and behold, it worked out well of course i'm not necessarily recommending if you think you have a broken foot don't go out and run but i trust my own you know perception of myself because i have a good relationship with my body and that's something that i've been lucky enough to learn uh, because i have good people around me yeah yeah you're like i don't know anyone else aside from our swedish friend misha baker who is, is like resilient on a range of physical stimuli <laughs> um but I, like you 
and what you do embody what I see as good phys- like good therapy anyway is that when we have a problem or a pain or an injury, once we know what's happening, you know, scans often don't give us much more information than we need. But what's really important is it's not going to get better. We adapt to stick to stress in like positive ways. And so things that are damaged only repair themselves in, in response to stress. Now that's well titrated dosed stress, which you yourself provided for yourself as a good, you know, self physio and any good physiotherapy, any good chiro osteo should guide someone to actually get back into those compromising positions because the body can become resilient. We've seen John Ewan do a helix squat and wonder how his meniscus handle it, but it's because stimulus has been dosed over a period of time to allow the physiology to respond. And so often when people go to see someone, they'll get told a narrative from their manual therapist, from their physio, where you need to back off. And I've, I've had a mentor once say the best thing for injured runners is running in some way. He'll never tell them to stop. Whereas, um, hearing hearing that like you're you know that you need to stop doing whatever you're doing because you're in pain is often the worst advice but the most common yeah and it's it's especially in again we are uh, i am anyway in this super biased world of like most of the people i'm around we're trainers and we're you know practitioners and everything like that but the majority of people who aren't even who are even you know we talk about that 17 years of of research into common knowledge it's even that's for the people in the fucking industry like yep. people outside of it that's even longer and like people who you know we uh, most of the people we treat aren't trainers they're maybe casual weekend warriors or uh, they might not even train at all and their first inkling is oh no i shouldn't like i heard somewhere it might have been 20 years ago they heard it but i've got to stop and it just it just continues to sing and we we need to just continue to try and get education across broader um now i would i think we got about a quarter of the way through the things i wanted to talk about today because ah, it's just been so in-depth which is awesome and i, I wish we could go longer but we are coming towards the end of our time uh, and i just wanted to finish with uh, a final sort of question i'd like to ask and if you were talking to a young coach or a young physio who's just sort of starting their journey what's one piece of advice that you would give them uh, at this point in the journey uh learn the basics don't get too complicated and always always and primarily good therapists are good humans first good coaches are good humans first so the better you can talk with listen primarily shut up listen to the people you work with the people around you and understand their context and speak to that with empathy you'll do far better than you will if you try and master the specific technical stuff that can come later. Listen, understand, be a good human. Who would have thought eh? human first. <laughs> it seems to, uh, it seems to apply pretty well to a lot of things. I think it would potentially solve a lot of problems in general. Uh, it's some really great advice. Uh, Ollie, again, thank you so much for your time, your insight, your sort of depth of, of thought about these topics was really, really uh, invigorating for me. And it's something that, you know, there's a lot of things that I thought I kind of knew today. And I was like, no, there's, there's definitely a lot more to it than, than even what I've looked into. So 
Um, I'm really excited to, <laughs> I have more notes about this one than I've ever had. So I'm excited to dive into a lot of these things you talked about. A lot of the history stuff I think is really important. So again, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Cool, man. Thank you.